Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We're back in uh, Corinthians at our place of study, picking back up after Easter, chapter 7 now, verses 1 through 9. It's a, it's a pastoral response now to a question uh, that they've asked Paul about sex and marriage. It follows very naturally Paul's warnings, which we looked at two weeks ago in chapter 6, about immorality and the command that Christians are to glorify God with our bodies. One of the ways we glorify God with our bodies is through physical intimacy in marriage. Of course, that wasn't just an issue for them in their day. That's an issue for us in our day. It's a huge issue in our culture. We said two weeks ago, we need not blush at speaking about these things in the proper context. Paul's letter would have been read aloud, as it will be in a moment, in public worship. We also said last time that we should be as direct as the Bible is direct. We might say more privately than we do publicly and less to children than we do others. To parents in including myself, I say, we should talk about these things with our kids. And we should try to create an environment where our kids can ask us questions. God made the body good. And he thought up male and female and mating. And we're wise to listen to him about these things. So what does he say? Let me invite you to hear Paul's words now in chapter 7, 1 through 9. This is the word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would be our teacher tonight. Show us what this means for us as believers in Jesus. 
Teach us how we ought to be shaped by this. Help us to glorify you with our bodies and forgive, we say, even on the front end, forgive our failures to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me say a few words about context uh, and then highlight three main points of the passage. So the context, uh, the first, let me begin uh, away from the text. Being married to a man must be difficult. I always think of the story of Nanook of the North in the Tulsa Zoo, as I was telling somebody at our house last night, in the polar exhibit, they have this video documentary of Nanook, an Eskimo man living there. This is an ancient documentary. The video shows him cutting ice and building his igloo for his family. It shows him fishing and catching fish and preparing them for food. It shows his wife and young child living with him in the igloo, and every morning... Before he gets up to go do his work to fish so they can live, he has to get ready, of course. And because it's cold overnight, his thin leather boots freeze solid. They have to be warmed up and made pliable and wearable so they don't cause problems with his feet. So every morning, his wife, to help him get out the door, chews his boots She chews his boots until they're soft. It's it's the most hilarious video. None of you are laughing. I just, I, I, uh, maybe you'll laugh at this. When, When I've been a bear to live with, and in time, when Melinda and I both have a good sense of humor about it, I always say, you know, it could be worse. You could be Nanook's wife. Gotta be hard to live with a man got to be as a husband as a wife marriage is god's idea and in it the in it the physical relationship is god's blessing to the married couple god made this sexual intimacy to be wonderful and pleasurable and bonding between husband and wife. Our culture, however, thinks, you know, it's okay to do anything we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, as often as we want. And our culture thinks that if someone thinks that this is a bad thing, sex, then they're being puritanical. But, you know, anybody who knows anything about the Puritans would never say that. The Puritans loved the Bible, and listen to what they said about this. William Goose, 350 years ago, said, Married couples should engage in sex with goodwill and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully. Another said this, When two are made one by marriage, they joyfully give due benevolence. That's the King James. (laughs) Due benevolence. One to the other as two musical instruments rightly fitted do make a most pleasant and sweet harmony in a well-tuned concert. Perhaps you've heard people say, well, you know, won't it be, you know, in marriage with one person the rest of your life, won't it get boring, you know, like eating the same meal every day? But I would say to you this, it's more like buying a vintage well-crafted instrument and learning to play that instrument really 
really well in concert with your spouse. That's a very different way to look at it, isn't it? By the way, we might say this, Puritans usually had about 10 kids, so you know they didn't hate this. (laughs) God made it good, he made it wonderful, and he made it for married couples. The last word of context I want to say is this. Isn't it interesting then that in this passage, when Paul talks about this, he actually mentions Satan specifically. You don't find Satan mentioned on every page of the Bible. But when it comes to this subject, there he is, he says, seeking to tempt and to destroy. Satan, we know from the Bible, was there at the first marriage, pulling Adam and Eve apart, aiming to destroy them. Satan, we know, was there at the cross, aiming to keep Jesus from winning the allegiance and affection of his bride by the work he did for her. And of course, Satan ultimately failed in that, and Jesus won his bride by serving his bride with his body hung on a cross. And now Paul warns us, this is a very real enemy who wants to destroy you and your marriage, and he'll use your sexuality to do it. So we must see that this is a good gift and blessing from God who delights in it, who made it, and it's the enemy who twists it for evil purposes, seeking to destroy us. And our marriages. Well, that's context. Now let's dive into the text. And let me highlight three points by getting at three questions. Why are people to marry? Paul addresses that in verses 1 and 2. It's not everything the Bible says about it. But why should we marry verses 1 and 2? Why should those who are married bless one another in this way? Verses 3 and 4. And how are we to bless one another? Verse 5. Those three things tonight. In the first place, why are people to marry? Well, Paul says in verses 1 and 2, God gave marriage to help us flee sexual immorality. Verse 1, this is what they said. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Those are their words to Paul. That's why most of your translations have them in quotations. He's quoting it back to them from something they wrote to him. And then he's going to address it. He's going to clarify it. Uh, It's a kind of questions he brings back at them as a statement. They, They evidently were seeking clarification. Paul, is this right? Is it right to say this? Now, I do want to say this. If you're reading out of the NIV, unfortunately, they've, they've, um, they have not translated this well. Uh, what they didn't say is it is good for a man not to marry. Okay, and Paul is not affirming that idea. No, the words are about intimate touching. In every other place where uh, we have a record of it, the words found here are always used to talk about sexual relations, not about marriage. It's more like they were saying, Paul, single men shouldn't marry because then they'll have relations. And for married men, it's better if they abstain, right? Paul uh, is going to address them about that. Let's ask the question, though, why would they, why would they say that? Well, let me give you a few reasons why. One, because perhaps... 
Paul had likely commended to them previously, his having lived with them, his own lifestyle at the time he was with them, he was single. And he uh, devoted himself to the service of the Lord. In fact, he goes on in this letter to say, I wish that all could be like me. Because a married person, he'll say in the rest of the chapter, has certain obligations and anxieties associated with their spouse that a single person is freed from. And so there's a certain benefit to being single in serving the Lord. In college, uh, my male friends and I, uh, living as we were in a kind of ghetto Christian subculture, had a saying, bachelor to the rapture. That's what we said about ourselves. I I think we thought we were nobly unattached for Jesus and imagined ourselves staying that way. But now I look back and just think, you know, we were just really lonely (laughs) and we were afraid to pursue girls. (laughs) Most of those guys are now married because most of them, like myself, grew up and realized they needed a wife. Paul here isn't contradicting Genesis chapter 2 when it says it was not good that the man should be alone, so God made a helper suitable for him, and it was very good after he did so. Instead, what Paul is saying, he's just saying, it's also good to remain single if you want to and can without sexual immorality. They may have picked up on that. And we're telling everyone to be single. They may also have thought this way. In heaven, there isn't marriage. And we should begin to live like that now, even if we are married now. So married people may have actually begun to live celibate in their marriages. And Paul has to address this issue. He says, don't do that. Verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul here is an honest realist. Most people don't have the gift to be single and celibate and content and pure. Many find they burn with passion, as verse 9 says. And Paul says it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So celibacy will be the exception, not the rule. Most people need to be married. Most in history have been married. The desire to mate is strong. And try to try to deny that desire is frustrating and filled with failure by most people. Let me just say, think then how how wrong it is to set up a religious system in which people are required to be single in order to serve the Lord. To set up a system, as as some have done, where ministers are required to be single against their natural desires and against their ability to abstain. How damaging that is. The end result of such a system is disastrous, as disastrous as it is predictable. Paul feared that implementing such a system in Corinth would result in further sexual immorality. Events in our own day and age have seen the realization of Paul's fears. And surely one of the morals of the story is that correct theology, even theology about marriage and sex, matters. And it matters a lot. 
Paul says, if you burn with passion, get married. Verse 9, if you cannot exercise self-control, that's a command. It's not permission. It is better to marry than to put your soul in danger because of immorality found outside of marriage. Now listen, friends, that may sound to you like a really low view of marriage, but it is not. It's not the only reason to get married. It's not the only purpose of marriage. That's beyond the scope of Paul's pastoral counsel to a specific question here. But it is one good purpose of marriage. Because righteous satisfaction is pleasing to the Lord and unrighteous satisfaction is displeasing to the Lord. Because righteous satisfaction is a help to us in saying no to unrighteous satisfaction. Paul knows that each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Some of the gift from God to be single and some don't. Few have the ability to be celibate and pure. So Paul commends singleness if you can and you want, but he commands marriage if you can't. So in verse 2 he says, get married. And it's just frank honesty. Each man should have his own wife. And each woman, her own husband. Not someone else's, but your very own. There's only room for two in that equation, friends. That's monogamous marriage. So the first point is this, verses 1 and 2. Why marriage? Well, one reason is God gave it to us to help us flee immorality. Second question. Verses 3 and 4, Paul tells married couples to bless one another with their bodies. Why are we to bless one another? Because it is a right of marriage and wrong not to. Look at what he says at verse 3. He starts with the rights of the wife. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Her husband, he says, is commanded to meet her needs, to make his desires not to be intimate, subordinate to her desire to be intimate. That was earth-shattering news in Corinth. Paul says the wife has equal rights, equal rights with her husband. Now that's radical, friends. In their day, the Corinthians were part of a culture that approved of a man who kept a wife at home to bear and raise children. But he kept a mistress for his pleasure, and he frequented prostitutes or had concubines if he could afford them for what he considered his daily needs. A man's wife's needs weren't on the agenda. They weren't considered. She was there to serve him and to bear and raise children. And Paul absolutely levels the playing field. The husband, he says, should not selfishly regard his body as his own possession, but as the possession of his wife. His body is something that is given to her, he says. And notice the direction of the movement. This is absolutely critical. It is not that the wife should have to demand that her husband serve her in this way. Rather that it is the responsibility of the husband to be proactive in this area. To gladly and willingly serve his wife by giving himself to her. The same, he says, is true for the wife. 
She is not to selfishly regard her body as her own possession, but as the possession of her husband. Her body is something that is given to him. And once again, notice the direction of the movement. It is not the husband who should have to demand that she give her body or that she serve him in this way. Rather, it is the responsibility of the wife to be proactive in this area, to gladly and willingly serve her husband by giving herself to him. For Paul, unlike many Christians throughout the ages or those who misunderstand the Bible, sex and marriage is definitely not the privilege of the husband and the duty of the wife. It is the privilege and the responsibility of both equally. It's not about, friends, going through the motions to assuage your conscience so that you can claim to have done your duty. And to be sure, there may be times in a marriage when the whole matter of duty may have to be addressed. But that is always, we might say, the last resort and the least desirable response. The issue is not first fulfilling a duty. The first issue is a sacrificial, self-giving, glad service to the one you have loved to seek your partner's joy, seek their satisfaction, seek to provide for them. And Paul says, husbands, love your wives and use your body to serve her. And he says, pay what you owe her. Notice his language in, in uh, chapter 7 again. To give her her rights. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans chapter 13 verse 8 when he says about love that Christians are to owe no one anything except to love them. Let no debt remain outstanding, he says, except the debt of love. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, render under Caesar, unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. In other words, he's saying it's not an option. It is obligatory in marriage. It, this is not a what's in it for me attitude, but rather a how can I serve my partner attitude. On your wedding day, friends, you are saying no, if you haven't already done so, to everybody else in the world and saying yes to the person you're marrying. Keep on saying yes. The stress is not on the getting, but on the giving. Keep on giving, Paul says. Verse 4, for the spouse has authority over your body. He over her, she over him. There's mutual authority, the one over the other. Give yourself to the other, he says. Verse 4 is a strong statement that we are not our own. We've already seen that in chapter 6, that our bodies are not our own. They belong to Jesus. If you become a Christian, you were bought with a price. You're owned by Jesus. Your body belongs to him. Now we see that our body belongs to our spouse. That's God's idea. And we are obeying Jesus when we live this way towards one another. But we can also say this, that authority cannot be employed to demand or to take by force. Otherwise, the one taking is denying the spouse has authority over the body of the one who's taking. 
the equality and mutuality of authority is a guard against that. There can be none of that where there is love because love is patient and love is kind and not self-seeking. It is not to be taken, but it is to be given. And it should not be withheld as a tool of manipulation or punishment. That's not what it's for. To do this, how do we do this? Husband and wives have got to communicate with one another. You've got to talk to each other. And you've got to really listen to each other. And really aim to please one another. Oddly, people get married all the time and go to the marriage bed. And when they are unhappy, they stew and they pout. And they try to guilt manipulate, satisfy themselves instead of talking with their spouse and being honest and aiming to love one another. Why not, friends, go out on a date and tell your spouse you love them and ask if there is any way that you could serve them more lovingly? Why not ask them that tonight? So Christian spouses must bless one another because our bodies belong to one another, Paul says in verses 3 and 4. How do we do that? How are we to bless verse 5? That's the last thing. In marriage, he says, couples should frequently and regularly be together. Notice his language, do not deprive one another. Except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time. That you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice what he says. Paul says, do not deprive one another. Do not defraud one another. That's the same word he used in chapter 6 regarding money. Do you remember in chapter 6 when he says, why not be defrauded? I mean, don't go suing one another within the Christian community. If another Christian takes something that belongs to you, why not just give it to them? Why not even be defrauded, he says. But here, Paul says, do not defraud the other person. Do not withhold from them. Do not be uninterested in them. Do not be unengaged with them. Do not be unwelcoming to them. Do not be unwilling. But initiate. Be regular. Be frequent. At a bare minimum, he says, at least as regular and frequent as either party needs to limit occasions for sexual dissatisfaction and temptation to sin. But why stop at the bare minimum? It is a very common complaint among those who are married that their spouse does not want to be intimate enough. What we should ask is going on in our hearts when we're happy while our spouse is unhappy and we could do something about it. We must not, Paul says, have sexless marriages and we must not have starved spouses. There are restrictions on this, Paul says. Abstain, perhaps, under certain circumstances. Abstain, says Paul, perhaps. There may be Reasons not to abstain at all. But perhaps, if you're going to abstain, he says, do so only by mutual agreement. 
If your spouse does not agree to abstain, then be willing not to abstain. The one who desires should be met with a yes. This agreement to abstain is not to be the result of coercion or emotional blackmail or anything like that. It's to be by mutual consent, mutually arrived at, mutually agreed upon, so that one partner cannot use the granting or withholding as a tool of punishment or as some kind of bargaining bargaining chip in the relationship. If you mutually agree to abstain, says Paul, it should be for a limited time. Even the two of you together, he says, shouldn't make pacts with one another to abstain for extended periods of time. No matter how spiritual your reasons are, or how spiritually strong you think you are, even if you agree, he says, to abstain, and it's for the special purpose of prayer, to devote yourself to prayer. Paul has in mind... You know, giving yourself to a season of prayer. This is not an excuse, you know, at bedtime uh, that you just really need to pray for 10 or 20 minutes. I mean, you know, there are 23 other hours in the day, either to pray or to be intimate. But he means you might, under special circumstances, as a husband and wife, agree that you're going to fast. Fast of food. Fast in this way. For a concerted time of prayer before the Lord. And that's fine, says Paul. But even then, don't be so pious as to think your praying will keep you from falling into temptation. It may just be the occasion in which you are tempted. And if that's the case, Paul says, come together again. Limit the time of abstaining. Therefore, be regularly and frequently together. Paul, mercifully, for your sake, gives no specific details about how frequent. And I will not indulge that question right now. Couples simply must talk to one another. You must be willing to say to your spouse, this is what I desire. And to hear from your spouse, this is what I desire. You must commit to being intimate allies, as the title of a good book puts it. For you are in a spiritual battle against Satan and sin. And righteous satisfaction is a weapon in this war. This is radical. Listen to this statement. Even the Lord himself would not stand between you and your spouse when your spouse desires to be intimate with you. Even the Lord would not stand between you and your spouse when your spouse desires to be intimate with you. The Lord says, leave your prayers. Leave your time with me. Leave your pious devotion before the throne of heaven and go be with your spouse, the Lord says. Don't be so pious your spouse is deprived of the pleasure and the enjoyment and the warmth and the intimacy and the good feelings and the security that's built and the bonding of the relationship that making love provides. Making love, he says, is pious. Don't be so cold to your spouse, he says, that you would look elsewhere for what God has provided for you through them. Some of you will say to me, but doesn't Paul say in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control? Why is he now talking about people who must be together because of their lack of self-control? Why doesn't he say, why don't you just live under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Paul here is being honest about human weakness, human desire, 
even among believers who have the Holy Spirit. And he is aware of Satan's strategy. Paul is aware of the temptations of the world. Paul is aware of the weakness of the flesh and the righteous desire of a loving spouse to be in your embrace, to give and receive love. So don't tell your spouse, just go be filled with the Spirit. But like Proverbs 5 says, let them be drunk on the love which you provide. You are, dear married person, a lake of clean water in which your spouse ought to dive. You are a spring of righteous satisfaction from which they ought to drink deeply. You are a well of godly help designed to quench their thirst. And be warned, other people in this world will not respect your marriage. They don't give a rip that you're a married person or that your spouse is married to you. They will try to come between you and your spouse. Do not let them, Paul says. And so far as it is up to you, do not let them. And insofar as it is up to you, don't let your spouse be tempted by them. That will not guarantee an affair-proof marriage, but it does and will help. It does and will make straying less appealing. Many have said no to temptation precisely because they know that there is a feast of love at home. Let me conclude by saying this. Sex is not the problem. And sexual immorality is but a symptom of the problem. You want to know what the real problem is? It's that a long time ago, Adam and Eve ate forbidden fruit, and when they did, everything changed. They changed, and we changed. And we went from people who come into this world loving God and loving one another to people who come into this world whose hearts are idol factories. And one of our idols is sex, and we trample on others to get what we want, whether to have it or to avoid it. And so I would ask you, have you been sinning against your future spouse by immorality? Have you been sinning against your current spouse by taking or by not giving? Here's what I can assure you. It is sin. And Christ came for sinners. And with his body, Jesus loved his bride, and he gave himself for her upon a cross, that he might give himself to her forever, that he might bring her to himself in the embrace of his love forever. Would you rather be known by your spouse as a generous lover or a stingy lover? Let us, dear friends, learn to love our spouse with the joyful generosity with which we have been loved by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would be a light to our path, that you would lead us and guide and guide us in ways of righteousness, that you would help us to be good lovers.
to glorify you with our body, to honor you in our marriage, to love our spouse and forgive all our failures in these ways. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing, Jesus, lover of my soul.